It's been 70 years since a British monarch was crowned. For some, the coronation of King Charles III is a time of celebration. For others, the day will pass without much thought at all. Whatever your perspective, May 6th offers each of us the opportunity to consider where today's monarchy has come from and how it shapes up for tomorrow. From the University of Aberdeen, I'm Laura Grant. Join me in going into the headlines. Episode 8, Making a Monarchy. In this episode, we'll be looking back with Dr Heidi Merkins, lecturer in modern European history at the university, hearing what the royals are like from the Lord Lieutenant for Aberdeenshire, trustee and former chair of the university's development trust, Sandy Manson, and discussing the king's affection for music with composer and chair in composition at the university, Professor Paul Mailer. Heidi, as starting points go, this would seem to be the natural one. From a historic perspective, can you tell us why we have a monarchy? The monarchy in Britain is actually a really ancient institution. It, it traces its origins from kingdoms of Anglo-Saxon England and early medieval Scotland. And they were consolidated into the kingdoms of England, Scotland by the 10th century, really. So there's a long, very long history of monarchical institutions here in Britain. Is it unique? How does it compare to others around Europe or further afield? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, every monarchy is unique in, in some way because monarchy always represents a, a very specific political and social environment, of course. So to understand the British monarchy, we have to look into the British history and, and, and national development. And of course, maybe the, the most unusual aspect of the British monarchy, the, the one I'm, I'm highlighting here, is that it has an uncodified constitution, which is really interesting. So the constitution of the United Kingdom comprises um, written and unwritten arrangements, and they establish the United Kingdom and Northern Ireland as a political body. But unlike in other countries, in most countries really, um, nobody has ever made an attempt to, to bring everything together, all of these rules into a single document. So this is what we know as an uncodified constitution. And that's really quite special about the British case. The advantage maybe is that the uncodified nature of the British constitution means that it can be changed quite easily. So because no provisions are formally written down somewhere, so you can go in and make changes. Um, and there's the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom, and they recognize that, you know, we have to uphold constitutional principles um, whenever, you know, changes are being made, for example, parliamentary sovereignty and democracy and the rule of law. So this is all guaranteed. Um, and still, it's, it's actually quite a, a flexible arrangement, which is really interesting historically. I didn't know that. Yeah, that is really interesting. Yeah. And, and I think what makes Britain really unique is that, you know, if you look at Europe overall, the constitutional era really begins after the French Revolution. You know, there are states with constitutions before that, but normally, you know, after the French Revolution, 1789, and also after the Napoleonic era, 1815, that's really when the whole constitutional idea kicks off as an estate establishes some sort of constitution. There's some shared power between uh, the monarchical side and uh, like elected political institutions. So that's 
when this all really starts. So that means that Britain had already by 1789 much more experience um, with constitutional arrangements than other nations. And other nations were actually constantly looking at Britain and trying to understand how does it work in this country? And can we can we make this work for our political and, and social environment here as well? It doesn't mean that everybody tried to copy uh, what was going on in Britain at the time, but as an idea, can we find an arrangement where you know, power is, is shared responsibly in some way um, to, to modernize our political system so that it works along the lines of how it works in Britain. So that's actually quite common in the 19th century. Britain was on everybody's radar. How much power or influence does the British monarch actually have? In a constitutional monarchy, we usually have the idea that um, responsibility for political decision-making lies with the government and with elected institutions. And the monarch is taken out of this responsibility and the monarch has different functions as, as head of state. So there's a shared responsibility for what's going on in the state, but um, the monarch has quite a specific role um, to fulfill. And the sovereign's role as a constitutional monarch is largely limited to non partisan function, for example, granting honors. And this really goes back to the 19th century. Um, we have a very interesting writer in, in 1867, a, a political journalist called Walter Bedgett, who wrote about the English monarchy. And he identified the monarchy as the dignified part of the state system and then he said the government is the efficient part. It's a quite an interesting distinction. What he meant is that the government is doing the hard work of you know, creating legislation and so on. And the monarch is representing um, what they come up with, but the monarch doesn't have responsibility for government decisions in some way. And he wrote about the rights of the monarch, which is, which is interesting because I think it still rings true today. So he wrote about the three rights uh, of every monarch in 1867. Um, the sovereign has, and I quote, the right to be consulted, the right to encourage, and the right to warn. Um, and that's what he thought would be the major role of a, of a monarch under a constitution. So at the time when Bedgett was writing this, Queen Victoria was, was head of state, and she would have completely disagreed with this kind of notion because she was very much a very political monarch still and she wanted to be engaged in in political decision making processes in, in in her in her own way so 19th century monarchs were still very much involved in political decision making but i think the first modern monarch in the sense that political opinion is a private view and i think this is george v who reigned between 1910 and 1936. He saw himself as an arbitrator, a negotiator between political factions and parties. He was quite well known for bringing political representatives around a table to discuss things through, and he was he offered himself as, an, as a negotiator. So that kind of view, I think, is, is what we understand as the modern role of the monarch. So many, many crown prerogatives have fallen out of use or have permanently been transferred to parliament. So, for example, a modern monarch can't impose or collect taxes. Uh, such an action always needs authorization by uh, act of parliament. But the monarch is head of state, head of the armed forces, uh, head of the church. They appoint prime ministers, so there are still various functions 
out there. So yeah, it's quite a complex role, I think, a monarch has, but not a very obvious or visible role all the time. A lot, I think, of what the monarch does happens more behind the scenes. Are there benefits to having a constitutional monarchy? That's a super interesting question, and I really want to answer this historically. So it's it's quite difficult to imagine this today, but uh, if we look back at 19th century Europe, it really was a continent of monarchies, uh, unlike today. It was monarchy was just the most popular political system. Even when new states were created, for example, after a revolution, um, the creators of these states basically went for a constitutional monarchy by design. And I think we have to think about the changing role of the monarch as a person and as a, as a function and as a role. So if we look at the 18th century or the Middle Ages, it was generally assumed that the right to rule was given by God. But after the French Revolution, this changed. And you know, it wasn't, it wasn't part of what people thought in the 19th century anymore about where uh, the right to rule came from. So legitimacy uh, of the monarch had to come from a different source. And monarchs were very much aware of the dangers of revolution. For example, the death of King Louis XVI in France as a consequence of the revolution was very much on the radar. So monarchs developed new strategies to remain relevant to changing societies and to be accepted uh, with their political institution. So in the 19th century, monarchs had the potential to become figureheads of their societies. We look at a century of nationalization uh, and those states with an empire actually often saw monarchs as imperial representatives of a nation's power. So they became like personifications of a, of a nation's power. But they also fulfilled different roles on other, in, in other views. For example, um, many monarchs became role models for morality or, or charity at the time. And this is really interesting. And this is the time where courts, royal courts, became less opulent and, and less extravagant uh, compared to previous centuries because they reflected a new set of rules and of values that seemed more acceptable to various audiences, including the rising middle classes, including members of the working class who were also you know, looking at the monarchy for maybe guidance. So royal dynasties went to great lengths to be seen as, um, uh, as a family unit, for example, and in, in harmony. Queen Victoria is a wonderful example. She commissioned so many paintings showing her and the Prince Consort Albert playing uh, with their children and, and being surrounded by the happy family. And this image of the happy family is very important at the time. So they were often seen in public with their kids, and we know that Queen Victoria doted on her husband. So the whole aspect of having a mistress and, and adultery and cheating is gone, at least for Queen Victoria and Prince Consort Albert. It comes back uh, with Edward VII <laughs> and Queen Alexandra. But generally speaking, if we look at other courts as well, um, happy family life is, is like the value to radiate. So it's really important. So in, in Italy and in Belgium and in various German states at the time, we see, you know, monarchs and families walking in the park, uh, you know, shaking hands with the common people, this kind of engagement. Dynasties trying to create relations with their subjects through the means of royal tours uh, and, and visits, uh, all carefully staged, of course, to address the union between the crown and the people, which is the new foundation for 
why a monarchy is still relevant. And then I'm, I'm doing research into this field, into this relationship. It's, it's really interesting to look at the emotional side of the relationship between monarchies and dynasties and, and the people and audiences. For example, we can look at expressions of emotions, not just in written sources, but also in visual sources, in material culture. Just think of all the trinkets produced, especially for these big royal events like the coronation. We've got tea sets and biscuit tins and flags and emblems and remembrance books and medals. This is not a modern invention. It's um, since the 18th century, people have bought very similar items and kept them and, and passed them on to to other generations and looking at these trinkets and looking at, at images it, it shows us an emotional side of monarchy and the soft power uh, of monarchy that is actually becomes much stronger in the 19th century and we can still see it at work today i think if we think about benefits of constitutional systems per se we might also mention continuity let's just take queen elizabeth ii as an example crowned in 1953, when Churchill was prime minister and uh, 14 more PMs were to follow um, until she passed away in, in, in 2022 after more than seven decades on the throne. Of course, if you turn this around, you can also ask the, uh, you know, the other question, what about the, the challenges and uh, the, the difficult sides of having a, a, a monarchy like this? Of course, it's a hereditary system. It, it, it depends on, you know, biological uh, happenstance in many, in many ways that you might find um, in the 19th century, for example, you might find yourself on the throne as an heir and you, you, uh, you feel you're not suited for the job, you're not cut out for this um, on various levels. For example, you, you are a very shy person and you have to perform constantly in public. So that can be very tough and it can create tension. So it, it's, it depends a little bit on how authentic uh, you feel and, and how, how well you can represent yourself in the position. And this makes a, um, a good relationship between you and your subjects when you're a monarch in the 19th century and maybe today as well. It's definitely not a job I would like, that's for sure. Are there any unwritten rules about how to keep your monarchy flourishing that we can draw from history? Yes, uh, I think the the most important one that is, is discussed in constitutional settings is always the stay neutral rule, and, which is interesting because it's it's not written down anywhere, but it's become some sort of unwritten rule or rule by experience, maybe, so heirs to the throne. These people don't have really a job description of how to become a successful monarch in the 19th century, at the very least. They had to find their own way into how to represent monarchy and how to be a monarch in many ways. Many heirs to the throne in the 19th century and many dynasties weren't even properly trained <laughs> to do the job, as in politically trained or trained how to deal with media interests or, or something along these lines. Uh, we still see this with uh, George V, for example, who was a, a second son and wasn't destined to be king and was trained as a sailor and Somehow this upbringing was part of his success story afterwards because he really endeavored to reign above party lines. He always had strong political views, absolutely. And especially in the beginning, he wasn't always successful in keeping them to himself. We know this, but he learned on the job and um, became quite successful. I think the, the other unwritten rule is monarchies have to find a balance 
between tradition and going with the times. You can't do just one or the other as a monarchy. I think that's a, a big learning curve from, from the 19th century as well. So a display of royal tradition is very, very important. His Majesty King Charles III will be crowned king on St. Edward's chair, um, which was made over 700 years ago and first used at the coronation of King Edward II. So there's regalia and ritual. And this is really, really important to preserve the mystery of the monarchy, the, the symbolism, especially on these gala days uh, like the coronation. So basically, to really put it um, in a nutshell, you need the golden carriage is still really important uh, for monarchies. At the same time, it's important to keep an eye on values, to keep an eye on how, how societies are changing. The other, I think, another point is media presence. It's really interesting to look at the relationship between monarchy and media. The British royal family has always been very good, I think, at using new media and, and accessing channels of communication with their, with their audiences. Last point, I think an ongoing challenge for the monarchy in the future will be to negotiate the imperial past um, and uh, to further develop an inclusive monarchy. So the union, uh, but also union with uh, the Commonwealth. And that's, I think, a, a major point for the future. Now, picking up on some of the points that Heidi's made, Sandy, as Lord Lieutenant, you've seen numerous members of the royal family in action. What are they like? Aberdeenshire is a large, diverse, uh, a very beautiful county and home to the royal residences of Balmoral and Burke Hall. So we've always been very fortunate, uh, Lord, to have such a special and enduring connection with their majesties and other members of the family. And all members of the royal family work incredibly hard. Uh, they bring their particular magic to whatever the occasion uh, they're attending. They attend a very diverse a uh, number of events ranging from supporting the work of countless charities to attending Highland Games and agricultural shows to walkabouts in town centres. So there's a huge um, demand for royal visits, and I can't overstate the benefit that these uh, that these visits create. The, the king and queen are always so interested in what's happening in the various parts of the country, and they love meeting the crowds who assemble for their arrival on, on a visit. And, and they always read their briefs so well, too. Uh, during a visit last year to Ballater to say thank you to some of the many people who assisted um, in Aberdeenshire with the arrangements for Her Late Majesty's cortege um, as it travelled south from Balmoral, two horses and riders were part of the lineup. And the Queen appeared out of the royal car uh, on arrival with carrots in her hand to feed the horses. So these are the small sorts of small touches that people hugely appreciate and notice. And when you're out on a visit, for example, with the king, he is so brilliant with people. He has a wonderful sense of humor. And he's more than a match for some of the great local characters uh, we have in Ballater and Braemar. Um, all members of the royal family that I've been fortunate to meet are naturally inquisitive. Um, they're hugely knowledgeable in a vast range of subjects. Uh, but they always seem to have an appetite for learning new things. Uh, they're also exceptional at putting people at their ease. I well remember sitting next to the Princess Royal at a lunch in Aberdeenshire, and a rather exotic-looking starter arrived. Uh, on further examination, we didn't quite know whether it was better to drink it, to eat it with one's hands, or use a spoon, or perhaps a knife. 
And at that precise moment, and seeing the collective unease and predicament around the table, Princess Anne piped up and said, how do you think we should best tackle this? So that's a wonderful skill to have, to put people at their ease at just the right time. You're right. Putting people at ease and mixing with folk from all different walks of life is not something that everybody's good at. And this picks up on one of the points that Heidi was making earlier about different monarchs and how they respond. How would you characterise the role the royals play in modern society? If I was to sum up what I see the royal family do for the many people and organisations they meet, it's this. Uh, They inspire, uh, they encourage, and importantly, they show sincere and genuine gratitude for the work thousands of volunteers do the length and breadth of the country. The king, of course, has particular themes which he's passionate about. Youth, community cohesion, the natural world, and the built environment. And the king is enormously sensitive and in tune to the ever-changing landscape uh, of the challenges we face um, locally, regionally, and nationally, and in the wider world. I've also seen the incredible support that His Majesty has provided to local charities and community groups. Uh, and, And these are never publicized. And His Majesty does these things because he cares passionately Uh, about the welfare of people and community cohesion. He wants to do all he can to make a a positive difference. And you need to look, I think, no further than, for example, at the work and the vision the king had for the Prince's Trust, just to see how he has positively impacted the lives of over one million young people by giving them such opportunities in life. And and I'm in the fortunate position, Laura, of witnessing it firsthand in Aberdeenshire, this tangible and lasting difference the work and thinking of his majesty makes to society in so many different ways in fact i if i was asked to name two people who have done the most for the enduring well-being of scottish society through their pioneering thinking and philanthropy uh, in say the last 100 years or so it would be king charles and andrew carnegie his majesty is Uh, very modest about the work he does and even though he does this huge amount of work um, but he always wants to do more he's a man in my experience who's very much in touch um, with what's going on he wants to know what's happening in the area especially an area like Aberdeenshire where where he and his her majesty have a have a home I'm going to ask you about that in just a moment but the stories you've been telling again show us how as prince Charles has publicly championed numerous issues over the years do you think he's going to be able to maintain his interests and his work around those issues as king? Uh, there is no question his majesty will be enormously respectful of his role as a monarch. Uh, that that's that goes without saying. Um, but of course he will continue to have his interests. And I think the nation, the Commonwealth, the world would be a lot poorer if that was otherwise. Um, it sounds like a bit of a cliche, but, you know, the king is a man who's ahead of his time. And most of us, most of the rest of us, quite frankly, are trying to play catch up. But but he has this incredible vision of a world working in harmony, uh, where rather than trying to address and solve one particular issue, you need to think about the bigger picture and how everything is connected. You've been very good at preempting my questions, because I was going to say, historically, monarchs and royal households have been quite detached but the Windsors do seem to be much more accessible. And it sounds to me that what drives that is a genuine interest in the lives of those around them, rather than it's because it's what's expected of a modern monarchy. 
I couldn't agree more. I mean, the king and queen are the most approachable and engaging people you're ever likely to meet. And uh, it's quite usual on arrival at a visit for their majesties to go straight to speak to the crowds before starting their official visit because they just love meeting people and, and, and hearing what's going on. And they're always so genuinely grateful to people for turning out to welcome them. I do believe the monarchy has been brilliant at adapting as society changes, and you can already see how the king is is introducing some notable changes to reflect how society has changed um, over the last 50 years or, or so. His majesty is a different person um, to her late majesty. He will have a different way of doing certain things, but he is totally committed in the same way as, as her late majesty to, to serve the people of the nation. In fact, I would strongly argue he's been already serving the, the the nation the commonwealth the wider world for most of his life so that's not that's not new um for, for example if you look at how diverse and inclusive the coronation will be uh, and my experience of his majesty is that he's someone who is uh, so naturally um uh, he so naturally embraces diversity and inclusion so I would expect King Charles to continue to look at ways in which the monarchy and the royal family can be as accessible as possible. And uh, as His Majesty's Lord of Tenants, we have an important role too to play in, in supporting um, His Majesty by amplifying the work that 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 he does throughout the country. So, so I I've no doubt that uh, with his incredible um, work ethic. And, and desire to support good causes, to support uh, business, um, to support the, the nation, the Commonwealth and the wider world that, that His Majesty will be and remain as accessible as possible. King Charles also read archaeology and anthropology at Cambridge, which are both subjects related to human society. And he spent time in the Navy where leadership, teamwork and inclusion are essential skills do you think these are things we can expect him to draw on going forward? I think one of the most important roles of any leader is to inspire and energize. And uh, the king has an extraordinary ability to do just that. He has such knowledge and vision. He skillfully breaks down barriers which have been holding back progress because like no other person I've ever met, he brings people together. His convening powers are remarkable. They're astonishing. Of course, he has opinions, many of them passionately felt, but I've never met anyone who can pull people together to rally around a cause. And his majesty always leads from the front. He will never give up trying to help others and make a positive difference. I think his majesty's life experiences will certainly have influenced the person he is today, but I'm always in awe of how visionary, how wise and how energetic a person uh, the king is. He's determined to make a positive difference with his time on this earth. And just look at what he's achieved with the Prince's Trust, the Prince's Foundation, the Prince's Countryside Fund, and the many, many other charities um, and good causes he supports. And I've sat in meetings absolutely amazed how various people who were connected with a common cause, but they'd never actually sat down and met and collaborated together until the king brings them together and inspires a group. To, to jointly work to find solutions. That's quite remarkable. Well, the starting point is the coronation. And Paul, you are now officially part of our national history as 
during the ceremony, the world will hear a new piece of music that you have composed for the choirs of Westminster Abbey and His Majesty's Chapel Royal. What can you tell me about that? Well, I was asked to write the music for the Kyrie, which is the very first part of the spiritual um, section of the coronation. So a Kyrie, uh, which is Greek, actually, um, normally uh, the English translation would be Lord have mercy upon us, Christ have mercy upon us, Lord have mercy upon us. Um, And so I was asked to set that, which happens right at the beginning. What brief were you given? How did you go about approaching the composition? The brief was pretty specific. Um, So the king asked me to set a piece, the Curie, in Welsh uh, for the first time that's ever been done, uh, which is brilliant as a proud Welshman myself. It was great to set this piece in Welsh. Um, And the idea is we're coming from the kind of great pomp and ceremony of the opening uh, into now the spiritual aspect of the coronation. And so my piece of music is that transition which takes you from that great pomp and ceremony now into into the very, very um, specific and sacred part. And so the music does that, or tries to anyway. We've been speaking about the fact that we know much more about King Charles and his interest than the nation did about Elizabeth II when she came to the throne. Is music important to him? We know uh, an enormous amount about King Charles, as as you say, and, and I think uh, he, he he's been around for nearly 75 years and has been a, the longest serving Prince of Wales and Duke of Rothsey. I think music and the arts are incredibly important to him. I don't think we have had a monarch since Queen Victoria uh, who cares so much about music. Victoria, of course, was married to a composer. Prince Albert was a composer, an organist, um, a pianist, um, and Victoria played piano and sang and, and was a huge champion of the arts and I think King Charles III follows in that that vein Um, and music, art, culture, he sees the importance of it in everyday life and and, you know you have to go into one of his studies either at Burke Hall or or in Highgrove and you'll see on his study the, the walls full of CDs and recordings of music, classical music, folk music, uh, he, he's a huge fan and lover of music. The details of what we're going to hear have been kept a closely guarded secret but in addition to some historic pieces King Charles has commissioned a total of 12 new compositions for the day. You might know more than the rest of us Paul, what do you think the choice of music overall tells us about the King's personality or perhaps even his intentions as monarch. And you've mentioned that this will be the first time that Welsh has been sung at a coronation. Is there added pressure that comes with doing something completely new that debuts on such a global stage? Yes, this is the first time that Welsh has been sung at a coronation. I'm the first composer to have said it. Um, uh, it it's an enormous honour for me, obviously, uh, to not only represent Wales, but also represent the Celtic nations uh, with this. Um, I think the choice of music generally uh, is uh, uh, is a reflection of the King's personality. The King knows the countries of the UK and the Commonwealth extremely well and has chosen composers and music from across that um, gamut of styles and, and uh, ways of life uh, so that this truly is a reflection of the country. 
And that is all we have time for today. In fact, it's more than we had time for, but I suppose what's a few extra minutes when we're condensing centuries of history down into one bite-sized chunk. A huge thank you to all my guests and thanks also to you for listening. Into the Headlines will be back, but if you want to keep up to date with the latest stories from the University of Aberdeen, visit abdn.ac.uk slash news and read all about it. This podcast was brought to you by the University of Aberdeen.